So I think what is shaping more things in more places and more ways and more days is that we're in the middle of three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet, which I call the market, mother nature, and Moore's law. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to a special edition of the ER. I recently hosted an event with New York Times columnist Tom Friedman at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where I'm a visiting scholar. We discussed his new book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations, which was released just a few weeks ago. In a seemingly chaotic world, just months after the shocking U.S. election, referendums happening left and right in Europe, and Putin inching his way to the center of the international stage, it seems that the world order as we know it is undergoing significant changes. In his latest work, Friedman identifies three rapidly accelerating forces behind these disruptions, Moore's Law, the market, and Mother Nature. He argues these forces are responsible for transforming our workplace, politics, geopolitics, ethics, and our communities. His work serves as both an explanation of the state of our world and a guide to navigating and surviving these changes. Rather than struggle against them, he recommends being late, taking the time to reflect upon these changes and to appreciate this watershed moment in history. It's a terrific book. I recommend that you go out and that you get it and that you think about it. The following is the conversation that Tom and I had about his book and about these apparent disruptions. I hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Bill Burns. I'm the president of the Carnegie Endowment, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you in from the cold this evening. And I'm especially delighted to welcome Tom Friedman back to Carnegie and to help launch or continue the launch mm -hmm. of his terrific new book, uh, Thank You for Being Late. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, um, <laughs> but I have to admit that Tom had me at the subtitle, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. All of us, I think, are looking for reasons to be optimistic. This is, as all of you know very well, a moment of extraordinary disruptions and dislocations and disorder, literally turning lives, politics, and societies upside down around the world and here at home. Tom has always had a rare gift for asking the right questions at exactly the right moment, and an equally impressive gift for providing creative and compelling answers, for helping us to understand and deal with the very combustible combination of political and economic and technological and environmental challenges emerging all around us. Tom also has a gift for understanding the lessons of history and the power of community in all of our lives. But in my experience, he's never dwelt on the past. He looks ahead and recognizes that the only real choice before us is not whether to embrace the future, but how. So this book is as good a guide to that future as I've found. I can't think of a more important or timely contribution. And I certainly can't think of anyone better to launch our conversation this evening than my friend David Rothkopf, a Carnegie colleague, the editor of Foreign Policy, and another remarkably thoughtful and perceptive observer of the uncertainties and the possibilities all around us. So I hope you'll join me in offering a very warm welcome to David Rothkopf and Tom Friedman. Thank you very much, Tom. It's great to be here with you. And what Tom just told me is the last stop on his book tour. This is the very last event. If you haven't seen me on cable, 
your cable is broken and you should call your service provider. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have, we're going to try to talk about some slightly different things. So even if you have seen it, stay here. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I put it a little bit in perspective. I've known Tom for quite some time now, back in a prior... Indonesia, I think. Indonesia, 19, um, yeah. It was, in, in the, right. Yep. Indonesia, back in Vietnam. But um, no, you know, Washington's got a reputation about pundits and policy people and short-sightedness and and self-interest-driven observations. And Tom has always been the exception to that rule, to me. Tom has always been looking out into the future. In fact, a week ago, or when we did our, our, our big Global Thinkers event for foreign policy, we launched something new, um, which uh, we're doing in conjunction with AARP. Sorry, I, I don't, I mean, you don't qualify <laughs> no. yet, but someday you will qualify, <laughs> um, which is a lifetime Global Thinkers Award for people who are thinkers who change the way other thinkers are thinking. And uh, Tom was the very first person I thought of with regard to this award, because part of what we're talking about here is a future in which change is going to happen much more rapidly than it's even happened to date. And that change is going to be in a lot of the issues that, that we've centered that award on, demographics, technology, other kinds of things. But here's the kicker. Tom's unusual. He's a remarkable thinker on a global level. But we're going to do something for you tonight that hasn't been done with all of you in six weeks. We're going to have an optimistic conversation. We both share this kind of anomaly, which is we actually strongly believe that things are getting better and that the future holds better things for us than the past. And in fact, if you pick up foreign policy right now, the cover story, and actually this uh, I wrote it, is, is called The Case for Optimism. And if you pick up Tom's book, the subtitle is about optimism. So I, I want to start there. You know, you, you've been around. You've been on the road from Beirut to Jerusalem. You've been in Washington in the swamp, uh, watching it just get deeper, basically. You've been in all of that, and yet you're an optimist. You're very positive about what's happening. Why? Well, David, um, let me start with the end of the book then, because it really is related to that. And first of all, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And Bill, thank you. It's always great to be on this podium at Carnegie. Because a lot of people have asked, David has asked me on the way up, so what have you learned on book tour? And I've been all over the country. And two overriding things. The first is um, how much people are starved for navigation right now. They're just parched for navigation. Uh, they, they not only sense in their lives that there's these accelerations, they're caught up in um, what's going to happen with my job, you know, what's going to happen in my community. Um, but they're, they're starved for navigation, especially after this election. Um, and they're starved for trusted navigators. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't in any way pretend that I'm one, but I can tell that that's what people are really hungry for because they sense something uh, that I sense. And, and um, the only way I can put it is in Middle Eastern terms. Uh, we're becoming Sunnis and Shiites. Politics has gotten utterly tribalized. Uh, so much so that, you know, we, we just saw in this election, both people just fall in line. And, and if you're reading my column, you know what I believe, that, um, that, that people voted for a man who is fundamentally indecent. And so I think people feel um, uh, that something really scary is happening. And if you heard the president's news conference, 
he really spoke to this in a, in a very profound way. I, I think this um, afternoon, this afternoon. Yeah. Um, cause he basically noted that when, when we become tribalized, then facts don't matter. Um, then institutions don't matter. All that matters is my tribe wins. And that is truly the beginning of the end of what makes us unique. So, um, I find people are just really, they, they know that they feel it, they fear it, and they're really hungry for an alternative to that. Um, what I, what I learned and is the source of my optimism is that, and this gets to the book ends in the community I grew up in, St. Louis Park, uh, which is a small town slash suburb uh, outside of, of Minneapolis. And uh, let me go there for a second, David, and then, and then sort of tease out the larger point. So the point I, I, I make, the reason I go back there, uh, had to do with the subtext of this book that basically I covered the Middle East for 30 years. I, I was on the White House lawn for Oslo. I saw Rabin and Arafat shake hands. Uh, I was in Tahrir Square for the uh, Arab Spring launching. Um, I was there for, I was, I was in Baghdad for the Iraq war, the, the hope that we could uh, somehow partner with people there to produce a different politics. And basically everything I hoped for failed. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, unfortunately, I have to say, except Tunisia. Uh, so I came home and I sort of invested my optimism in America and uh, wrote a book with my, my friend and colleague, uh, Michael Mandelbaum, uh, That Used to Be Us, How America Lost Its Way in the World It Invented and How We Can Come Back. And um, it was really about this idea of nation building at home. And then I watched us start to mirror the Middle East. And so what really was going on psychologically for me in this book was um, I decided I really needed to go back home to this community I grew up in uh, that I remembered so fondly that was a place of inclusion where politics worked. And first, just to determine whether I made it all up um, or and I just remembered it in some gauzy way or whether it was real. Um, and if it was real, what were the lessons then that I could share with people? So I go back to St. Louis Park, and these are the last two chapters. And um, the backstory is that the, the Jews in Minnesota all lived, um, vast majority of them, except Bob Dylan's family up in Hibbing, um, all lived in a ghetto in the north side of Minneapolis with African-Americans. And um, from the basically 30s and 40s, my, my mom and dad went to a totally integrated high school, not because it was integrated but because basically the blacks and Jews all lived together in the ghetto. And Minneapolis was um, known as the capital of anti-Semitism uh, in America. And uh, my parents couldn't join AAA, for instance, um, among other things, until Hubert Humphrey became mayor uh, in the late 40s and cleaned it out of city government. And uh, so Humphrey really you know, began his civil rights crusade actually working on anti-Semitism, not black-white uh, issues. So in the mid-50s, after the war, the boys come home from the war, and um, uh, the Jews are able to basically escape the north side. And in a three-year period, between roughly 1953 and 1956, they all move out to one town, uh, St. Louis Park, which had both the housing stock and didn't have restricted covenants. So they could all move. So our, we, I grew up actually in a house with my aunt and uncle's family, and we moved one house, and they moved two doors down. And everybody, my uncle moved two doors down the other way. So this suburb overnight, which had been 100% Protestant, Catholic, Scandinavian, uh, overnight becomes 20% Jewish, 80% Protestant, Catholic, Scandinavian. So I would say if Sweden and Israel had a baby, it would be St. Louis Park, okay? And, um, and what happened uh, was incredible sort of explosion of creativity that, that, you know, we, the Jews of Minnesota, we called ourselves the frozen chosen. And um, uh, so we and these progressive uh, Swedes... Uh, basically really embraced their pluralism. And, you know, God sort of put us all together. And out of that came uh, my high school, my Hebrew school, and my 
my community. Uh, and so I grew up with the Cone brothers, Al Franken, Norm Ornstein, Michael Sandel, you know, Sharon Isbin, the guitarist, um, Peggy Ornstein, Alan Wiseman, Dan Wilson wrote someone like you with Adele. Uh, it's got his own Wikipedia page. This was a freaky place. Okay. This is not a neighborhood in the Upper West Side of New York. This is a little one high school town in Minnesota. Um, and we all basically, uh, I think we're deeply affected. Michael Sandel's communitarianism, um, my moderate politics, Al Franken's commitment to social justice, um, the Cone brothers, you know, take on the world, uh, Peggy Ornstein. We all kind of brought Minnesota out into the world because we all knew we grew up in an inclusive community where politics worked. And, uh, so I, I, I tell that story. Then I come back 40 years later. And uh, I basically explained that I left Minnesota in 1971 to discover the world. And I came back in 2013 when I started working on this book to find that the world had found St. Louis Park. Uh, now my high school is uh, 50% white Protestant Catholic Scandinavian, 10% Jewish, 10% Hispanic, and 30% Somali uh, and African-American. Because the same town that was ready to take the Jews took the Somalis. So now the inclusion challenge is so much broader and deeper. And uh, I go back to basically see how they're doing. Um, and the Washington Post rates my high school uh, as the sixth or fifth. It's in the book, uh, Best High School in the State of Minnesota, with a completely different demographic. So is, is it challenging? It's hugely challenging. And Minneapolis has a whole parallel set of challenges because their public school system now is 68% non-white. And um, in St. Paul, it's 78%. Uh, Minneapolis said there was like some ridiculous number of languages spoken. Right, over 100, 142 languages, I think, now spoken in the Minneapolis and St. Paul school system. 102, I think, different languages. So uh, it's gotten incredibly diverse. Now, why is this important? Because Minneapolis, St. Paul is the home now of 19 Fortune 500 companies. So this is the workforce of the future. So if they, the, the need to take on this challenge of inclusion and education um, uh, is not a just a some little hobby for these companies. Um, so we'll talk about that in a second. But what I found overall, David, was that uh, lots of problems, lots of challenges. We had a police shooting in St. Paul um, uh, just a few months ago. But what I found is that uh, despite the, the depth of these challenges, you know, my, my friend Amy Lovins, who uh, is a great physicist, founded the Rocky Mountain Institute and was my tutor in this book for all the biology and, uh, and, and natural world stuff in it. And he's been a great tutor. And um, Amory likes to say whenever he's asked, are you an optimist or a pessimist? He says, I'm neither, because they're just two different forms of fatalism. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be awful. Uh, Amory says, I believe in applied hope. And I love that term, applied hope. And what I saw in my community in Minneapolis were not that there weren't difficult problems and not that they were all being fixed, but boy, they're the number of people who want to get caught trying is phenomenal. The number of people who want to apply hope. And that is the source of my optimism. If you want to be an optimist about America today, stand on your head. Because the country looks so much better from the bottom up than from the top down. And, uh, uh, and, and for some very specific reasons. And so let's go to Minneapolis and then I'll stop this answer. But um, Minneapolis has spawned. One of the reasons I'm such an optimist is because what you'll find is massive social innovation going on at the local level uh, and very apolitical. Uh, so Minneapolis has taken it to a, an extreme because um, uh, Minnesota in the 50s uh, was blessed with an extremely far-sighted uh, elite and philanthropic elite. It's the Dayton family, started Dayton's and Target, uh, the McKnight's, uh, the Bushes who started um, 3M, the Pillsbury's, the Cargill's, 
uh, the General Mills family, and they all used to vacation together in the summer in northern Minnesota at a place called Lake Itasca. Uh, and they invented corporate social responsibility. They come down at the end of the summer and they mandated that every Minnesota company had to give a 5% top line to the community. Um, and that's why we got all these amazing uh, things like the Tyrone Guthrie Theater and the park system and whatnot. So um, uh, we went through our own bad patch. We had Donald Trump before there was Donald Trump. His name was Jesse Ventura. Um, and uh, he was a wrestler uh, who managed to win in a three-party race. And uh, the state really started to get off track. And so what happened in the early 2000s is a group of the, these 19 Fortune 500 companies, all these philanthropies, uh, local government and the University of Minnesota, the new generation got together and formed the Itasca Project. Uh, they meet every two weeks. They uh, basically chart out all the things they think the state needs in terms of education, uh, entrepreneurship, you know, buy Minnesota infrastructure. When Tim Pawlenty was governor and wouldn't sign the transportation bill, because uh, he didn't want to be, he wanted to uh, curry favor with the Tea Party. Uh, the Itasca Project got four Republican legislators to split from the party, and Tim Pawlenty was forced to sign the transportation bill. And so, a study Itasca, it's one of the most remarkable uh, social entrepreneurship, uh, I think, innovations in the country. I say they meet, I just sat in on their meeting this week. They meet every two weeks, they're bored. McKinsey provides free data, everything's database. And their symbol, uh, they, they, only, they had no website. They actually only created a website because they knew I was going to write about them. So they figured they better have something on the web. Um, if you, they have a huge inclusion project where all these CEOs are now going through diversity training. And uh, I've got a wonderful interview for me in the book of the head of Lutheran Brotherhood explaining, like, you know, they always had Lutefisk at their Christmas party. And uh, now they've got these Somalis. That's it's a, disgusting. It's, right? <laughs> uh, they've got these. And, you know, uh, new workers that they, they're trying to make a feel at home. But the point is, the symbol of the Itasca group is a dining room table. Everybody gathers around. There are no sides. You check your politics at the door. And by the way, if you want to get something done, your obligation is to do it yourself, to lead that project. So don't raise anything at the table that you aren't ready to lead yourself. And I tell their whole story, but it's these kinds of social innovations that are happening actually all over the country. My friend Giddy Greenstein, who I quote in the book, as it, as it makes a really important point, which is that nothing needs to be invented today. Whatever you can think of, there's some community already doing it. It just needs to be found, highlighted, and scaled. And that's why I'm an optimist. And, and and it sounds like a very good reason to be an optimist because it sounds like your optimism is not just rooted in a few recent developments no. about the future. Right. It's rooted in a long history of people confronting challenges and finding solutions for them and adapting to a new era yep. when changes are happening more rapidly. And in the book, you talk about three accelerations. And I think before we get into some more specific questions, maybe you could explain that idea because I think it's really central for the book. So um, the, the book, in some ways, is is uh, it's built around me explaining actually to my parking garage attendant how you write a column, um, and that's how it begins. And uh, I won't have so you planning for your retirement, right? Exactly. I'll just do this. Everyone knows I, you know, just put ten cents in me, and I'll explain to you how to write a column. So, um, uh, and I, I explained to him that a news story is meant to inform, um, uh, but a I could write a news story about this event and inform better or worse, but a, a column is meant to provoke. So I'm either in the heating business or the lighting business. That's what I do. I'm either doing heating or lighting. I'm either stoking up an emotion in you or I'm illuminating something for you. And if I really do it well, I do both at the same time. 
Um, but I explained to him that uh, to produce uh, heat uh, and light requires a chemical reaction. And you have to combine three compounds. Um, the first is what is your value set? Are you a communist, a capitalist, a neocon, a neoliberal, a libertarian, a Marxist, a Keynesian? What is the value set you're trying to push into the world? Um, second, how do you think the machine works? So the machine is my shorthand for what are the biggest forces shaping more things in more places in more ways and more days. As a columnist, I'm always carrying around in my head a working hypothesis of how the machine works. Because when you take your values and want to push the machine, you better know how it works. Otherwise, you either won't push it or you'll push it in the wrong direction. Lastly, what have you learned about people and culture? Because there's no column without people and no people without culture. How does the machine affect people and culture? And how do different people and cultures respond and then affect the machine? Stir all that together, let it rise, bake for 45 minutes, and if you do it right, you'll produce either heat or light. So um, the book came out of, um, as the more I explained this to my parking guy, um, the more I started to reflect on myself, like, well, if that's what a column is, what is my value set? Where did it come from? How do I think the machine works today? And what have I learned about people and culture? And that's really the frame of the book. And what David is alluding to is, how do I think the machine works today? So I think what is shaping more things in more places and more ways and more days is that we're in the middle of three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet, which I call the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. So Moore's Law, coined in 1965 by Gordon Moore, co-founder of Intel, said the speed and power of microchips will double every 24 months. It's now up to about 30 months, but never mind. That's an unusual exponential uh, that could hold up for 52 years. If you put it on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. Uh, a few years ago, Brian Krasanich, the CEO of Intel, had his engineers just do a back-of-the-envelope calculation what would happen if a 1971 VW Beetle improved at the rate of Moore's Law, as microchips have? And they determined today that that Beetle would go 300,000 miles an hour, it would get 2 million miles per gallon, and it would cost 4 cents. Okay, <laughs> So um, we rarely encounter exponentials in our life. That's why they're very hard to grasp. The, one of the hardest things for the human mind to grasp is, is what you know, they call in physics the second derivative, where, where you're dealing with something that's growing exponentially. Um, John Kelly, the third who ran the IBM Watson project, and I spent a huge amount of time with the Watson team, said to me along the way, and I quoted this in the book, that um, you know how when you get a uh, new car, it always comes with a sticker on the rearview mirror, and it says objects in your rearview are closer than they appear? Uh, John said that belongs on your front windshield now. It's the stuff coming at you that is much closer than it appears. So that's one acceleration. The second acceleration I call the market, that for me is digital globalization. Not your grandfather's globalization. Containers on ships. It's actually going down. But everything that is now being digitized and globalized, whether it's through Facebook, PayPal, Twitter, uh, MOOCs, that's what's actually driving globalization today and making the world not just hyper-connected but interdependent. Uh, and lastly, Mother Nature is climate change, biodiversity loss, and population growth. Put all of them on a graph, they all look like hockey sticks. And what's going on today is the three of them are interacting. More Moore's Law drives more digital globalization. More globalization drives more climate change and more solutions. And my argument is these three accelerations aren't just changing the world. They're fundamentally reshaping the world. And they're reshaping five realms, and we're in the middle of it. Politics, geopolitics, ethics, the workplace and community. And the first half of the book is about how these accelerations are being formed. Second half is about how they're reshaping the world. I just say one thing about more about Moore's Law. Uh, my chapter on Moore's Law is called What the Hell Happened in 2007. 
Uh, and this emerged from my research because uh, uh, when I started actually digging into Moore's Law, um, I kept arriving at 2007. It sounds like such an innocuous year. I mean, what's this guy talking about? Uh, well, here's what happened in 2007. 2007, Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone at the Moscone Center in San Francisco and began a process by which we are now putting a handheld computer connected to the internet in basically the hands of everyone on the planet. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. That's not all that happened in 2007. 2007 is actually late 2006. A company called Facebook opened its platform attending one of the registered email address. Uh, it had been confined to high schools and universities, and it went global in 2007. In 2007, a company called Twitter spun off on its own independent platform. It was started in 2006 and went global. In 2007, the most important software platform you've never heard of, uh, called Hadoop, named after the founder's son's toy elephant, launched its algorithm into the wild. Uh, it is one of the key foundations of big data. It's what allows a million computers to work together as if they're one computer. It's actually Google that pioneered it, but as Doug Cutting, the founder of the Hadoop, says in the book, Google lives in the future and sends us letters back home. And um, uh, what Google did was basically uh, take its key algorithms for, for enabling us to uh, connect all these computers to create big data and then to be able to search unstructured data. And they left breadcrumbs for the open source community. And um, uh, the founders of Hadoop created the open source version of what um, uh, Google had done and basically everyone, Yahoo, Facebook, Twitter, they all built on that. Uh, but I'm just getting started. In 2007, GitHub, now the world's biggest open source software repository, opened its doors. In 2007, um, Google released into the wild an operating system called Android. In uh, 2007, Google bought a little-known TV company called YouTube. Uh, in 2007, uh, Jeff Bezos unveiled uh, the world's first ebook reader called the Kindle. In 2007, IBM launched the world's first cognitive computer called Watson. In 2007, three design students in San Francisco who attending the design conference that year decided to rent out their three air mattresses uh, to people who could not get hotel rooms. Uh, and it worked out so well, they started in 2007 Airbnb. 2007, change.org started. 2007, Palantir started. You'll see in the book, I have a graph of uh, the cost of sequencing a human genome, 2001, $100 million. Uh, a couple years later, it's $10 million, And then it goes literally over a waterfall. You'll see the graph in the book. Trace your finger down to the bottom. The year is 2007. 2007, solar energy took off. In 2007, a process for extracting natural gas from tight shale called fracking began. Uh, in 2007, the cloud started. That's when you see the first, uh, the cloud as we know it today, emerged the first numbers for profits emerge, and in 2007, Intel for the first time went off silicon to extend Moore's Law. They introduced non-silicon materials into their transistors, which allowed them to keep the exponential going. Turns out 2007 may in time be understood as the single greatest technological inflection point since Gutenberg invented the printing press. And we completely missed it because of 2008. Right when our physical technologies just take off, like we were on a moving sidewalk at an airport that went from five miles an hour to 35 miles an hour, right when that happened, what Eric Beinhacker calls our social technologies. All the things you need to go with that, the learning, the relearning, the adapting, the, uh, uh, the regulation and deregulation, the political reform, everything froze. And we're now living, I believe, David, in that disjunction. Um, and so, you know, I always remind people, um, someone was alive when Gutenberg invented the printing press. And some monk did say to some priest, now that is really cool.
Okay, I don't have to write these Bibles out longhand. I mean, we can just stamp them. Out. That is really cool. I think 2007 was one of one of those years. And basically, if you put, um, I'm, I was very sensitive to it because I, I wrote. Uh, I think basically what happened in the early 2000s were two price collapses that have really reshaped our world. Uh, the first happened right around the year 2000, late 90s, because of the dot-com boom, bubble, and bust. We collapsed the price of fiber optic cable, um, and we accidentally wired the world. Honey, I didn't mean to, but I shrunk the world uh, because we made the price of fiber optic cable so cheap we could turn an engineering back room into Bangalore as if it was a back room here. We all woke up and said, wow, I am touching someone I've never touched before. And I'm being touched by someone who could never touch me before. I remember calling my mom in Minneapolis around that time. She was 80 years old. She clearly sounded distracted. I said, what's wrong, mom? She said, you're bothering me. I'm playing bridge on the internet with someone in Siberia. Okay. (laughs) And um, so I gave that moment a name. I said, the world is flat. And I wrote the book in 2005. I did a 2.0 edition in 2006, and I did a 3.0 edition in 2007, and then I stopped. I thought I had the machine figured out. As my broker said to me, 2007 was a really bad year to stop sniffing glue, okay? So right when I put my feet up, I didn't realize we were on the cusp of another massive price collapse, and it was a collapse in the price of storage and computing. Um, and it happened for a lot of the reasons of the technologies of 2007 and what this price collapse did. If the fall in the price of fiber optic table made connectivity fast, free, easy for you and, invi- and ubiquitous, what happened as a result of 2007 was we made complexity fast, free, easy for you. 2000 was all about what, who you could touch and who could touch you. And 2007 was about all the things you could do now with one touch. Taxi, I'm at Carnegie five years ago, 30 minutes, uh, 30, and they didn't believe it, and neither did you. Uh, uh, when I get done tonight, I will take out, and with one touch, I will page a driver, direct a driver, uh, rate the driver, and pay the driver. And we are abstracting complexity now uh, everywhere, and it's like grease that we're putting into everything. And you can now lift everything with just so much less effort. When you make connectivity fast, free, easy for you, and ubiquitous, and you make complexity fast, free, easy for you, and invisible, and you put those together, you get an incredible release of energy. And it changes four kinds of power. Changes the power of one. Wow, what one person can do now. We have a president-elect who can sit in his penthouse and tweet to the world, to hundreds of millions of people directly, unfiltered by an editor, uh, a libel lawyer, anybody. Um, But uh, we also have a world where the head of ISIS can do that exactly the same way from rocket problems. The power of one has fundamentally changed. The power of machines have fundamentally changed. They now have all five senses. Uh, They have cognition. I did the IBM Watson Developer Conference five weeks ago in Las Vegas, and when I got there, they told me that Watson had just co-written a song with Alex DeKid that in 48 hours went to number four on iTunes. You know, the world kind of changed on February 14, 2011, when on all places a game show, there were three contestants. Two were the all-time Jeopardy champions, and the third just went by his last name, Watson. Watson passed on the first question, but he did buzz in before the two humans on the second question. And the question was, it's worn on the foot of a horse and used by a dealer in the casino. And in under 2.5 seconds, Watson answered in perfect Jeopardy language, 
what is a shoe? And for the first time, we saw a cognitive computer figure out a pun, figure out a pun faster than two human beings. Uh, it's changed the power of flows. Ideas now flow at a speed and scale we've never seen before. Uh, Dylan Roof, um, this uh, terrible person who shot up a black church um, in South Carolina. Remember what happened afterwards? The Confederate flag. It flown over the state house there for 50 years. And in a world of Twitter and Facebook, gone. Okay, Barack Obama five years ago said marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, today, blessedly so, he says marriage is between any two people who love each other. And he will follow Ireland in that position. So we're seeing ideas now flow and change at a rate we've never seen before. And lastly, it changes the power of men. We as a collective are now a force of and in nature, so much so that the new geophysical era is being named for us, the Anthropocene. And these four changes in power, I think, David, are really reshaping the world. I think they are reshaping the world. And, and interestingly, you, know, you mentioned Gutenberg, and it took 350 years to get from the, bio, the Gutenberg Bible to the First Amendment. It took about roughly the same period of time to get from the Gutenberg Bible to about 100 million books. It took about 90 years to get from the first phone to 100 million telephones. It took 33 days to get from the first copy of Angry Birds to 100 million copies of Angry Birds. So the change is happening very fast, but we haven't had the ability to internalize that change as we did in the 350 years. Between Gutenberg and the First Amendment, there was John Locke, there was the Glorious Revolution, there were philosophical debates. What is freedom of the press? How do we deal with this? We're having massive changes on a massive scale. And every so often, and you and I have talked about this, but I think every so often in history, you get to a moment where technology and social change happen much faster than institutions and systems of belief can keep up with it. And you get a disruption. It's called the Reformation. It's called the Industrial Revolution and the revolutions of 1848. And I have this sense that we are in one of those moments now. And you talk about 2007 happened in 2008, you know, was a curveball and, and, right. and caused us to misperceive it. But I think 2007 happened, but actually 2001 kind of made us stupid. Uh, in other words, there was 9-11. We became right. mesmerized about terrorism. We became mesmerized about one th threat, and we stopped seeing all these other changes yeah. that are happening around us. And, and we still over-focus yeah. on that, and we don't notice that we're rewiring society, changing you know, the answer to the question, who am I? What is a community? What is governance? What is money? What's a job? What's war? What's peace? All the fundamental things are being reframed. Yeah. And yet, around here, I don't mean Carnegie, Bill. Carnegie is at the cutting edge of everything, but mm. outside of Carnegie and around this building, these are not the discussions that we're having. And one of the things that I take away from your book, and this will be my last question, and then we're going to take a couple from the audience, but, but one of the things I take away from the book is the answer to coping with these changes is not coming from governments. Governments are lagging this. In fact, the rise of ethno-nationalists here in the Philippines, in Europe, orchestrated by, you know, bad dude in Moscow, yeah. is, uh, is a reaction to all of this. This is people's, what you're, the sound that you're hearing politically is people's fingers scraping on the sidewalk, trying to be kept in the, in the past. Somebody else is doing it. And I got, the thing I took away from yeah. your book, whether it's the Itasca project, yeah or these technologists, is that it's artists and scientists and technologists 
clergy, it's students, almost everybody else is leading the way to this change, and governments and institutions are lagging behind. And do you I, I, and I like that a lot. It, it, um, does somebody have a copy of my book? I just borrowed for a second. Um, uh, sorry, <laughs> didn't bring one out here. Thank you. Because uh, I, I, I want to read something before we go to questions. So it really, your, your question, uh, I think it's so appropriate, David, and it, it brings two things to mind that, that I learned. One is that I think the proper governing unit for the 21st century, um, that is the central governing unit, is not going to be the federal national government, wherever it is, uh, because these governments are, are simply too slow now to adapt to this scale of change. And especially when we get this tribalized, they become even slower. Um, it's not going to be, this, to go to the other extreme, it's not going to be the single family, because these accelerations are just too powerful for a single family to manage, and we have too many single families that are now single parent. Um, it's going to be the healthy community. So I think the healthy community, town, whatever you want, the neighborhood, uh, is going to be the proper governing unit of the 21st century. And that's where I think our great strength as a country is, because we, we have actually many more healthy communities than you'd realize. They're much more um, apolitical, so they can, they can adapt so much more quickly. Um, but the other point uh, I think you're, you're, you're alluding to, and we've talked about this before, is the reason the book is called Thank You for Being Late is uh, in part, you know, I could have called this The World is Fast. Ah, very cute, the world is flat, then it's fast. But it's not called that at all because um, the sub-theme of the subtext of the book is I argue that everything that is important today is all the stuff you can't download. It's all the stuff you have to upload the old-fashioned way one human being to another. And I came across this everywhere I went in this book. You know, there's a very interesting uh, Gallup study, which I, I wrote about as a column five years ago, and I retell in the book. Gallup does a huge amount of education polling. So it was about five years ago. It's in the book. You can see the details of it. They had 25,000 people uh, who had been out of uh, college for, I forget, it's four or five years. And they interview them, ask them one question, are you happy with the direction of your career, your life? Uh, and then they broke out everyone who said yes. And they drilled down and found that they had three things in common. Uh, one is where they went to college had zero correlation with happiness, okay? Wichita State, Harvard, Yale, didn't, where you went to college was irrelevant. Second, uh, they had all, or majority, had had an internship somewhere along the line in their area of interest some really hands-on experience. And the third was that they had all had a mentor who somewhere along the way had taken an interest in their hopes and dreams. So it was all this stuff you can't, you can't download. I tell the story of a startup called LearnUp.com, which is one of my really favorites, started by a woman named Alexis Ringwald, uh, who I got to meet in India first. And um, so LearnUp uh, works this way. We, we have big retail companies, The Gap, The Limited, uh, Old Navy, Walmart, um, and their HR systems are basically designed to weed people out. They're basically designed to keep people away because they get inundated with applications every day, thousands. So LearnUp came along as an interface between all those people applying in the company, and they insist you have to take a, 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 actually a two-hour test before you can apply for a job. And the test really is just, do you know how to fold a shirt? Do you know how to work a cash register? Do you know how to deal with a customer, among other things? And just asking people to sit down and take a two-hour test weeds out a lot of people. If you pass that, they then make your job interview appointment for you. But if you go to LearnUp's website, what you'll notice in the upper corner is a kind of smiley face. Uh, it's called the coach button. No button gets pressed more 
on their website than the coach button. It's actually a human being. Coach, uh, what should I wear to my interview? Uh, coach, what if I'm going to be late? Coach, what do you think the first question uh, might be? Coach, you know, is there someone that's already applied there from my neighborhood I, I might be able to talk to? Turns out everybody needs a coach, whether you're running Walmart or applying to Walmart. And I came up against, not against, but uh, this overwhelmed me in working on the book, David. How many times when you, when you peel down, it was the human-to-human things that were the differentiator, all the things you can't download. So maybe before we go to questions, I'll just do, read one paragraph of the book, which really summarizes how I, how I feel um, or, or what, I, what I concluded, and it's um, right toward the end. I said, don't get me wrong. Technology has so much to offer to make us more productive, healthier, more learned, and more secure. I'm awed by the intelligent assistance I discovered in researching this book and the potential it has to lift so many people out of poverty and discover talent and make it possible for us to actually fix everything. I'm hardly a technophobe. But we will get the best out of these technologies only if we don't let them distract us from making these deep human connections, addressing these deep human longings, and inspiring these deep human energies. And whether we do that depends on all that stuff you can't download. The high five from a coach, the praise from a mentor, the hug from a friend, the hand up from a neighbor, the handshake from a rival, the totally unsolicited gesture of kindness from the stranger, the smell of a garden, and not the cold stare of a wall. And and that's why it's called Thank You for Being Late, because I think um, uh, people who know me and you know, um, I talk the talk of globalization technology. I do not walk the walk. If you're talking to me on Twitter, I have to tell you, I don't go there. Um, so if you're looking for my Facebook page, all the Facebook pages up there are phony because I don't have one, okay? So um, I talk the talk. I do not walk the walk. I know who my friends are. Uh, they're not a thumb up or a thumb down. Uh, if you want to communicate with me, write me a letter. And the biggest compliment I can give you when you come to have breakfast with me is thank you for being late. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.